Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I'm speaking with my dear friend, Richard Rohr, old dear friend, Richard Rohr, about Good Friday and Sunday in a time of coronavirus. Father Richard Rohr is a Franciscan. He really is a Franciscan (laughs) of the New Mexico province, an academic dean, an author, a spiritual teacher, and the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Well, I'm excited, and I mean that. There have been so many calls lately, and because of our long friendship and my uh, long-standing belief and appreciation for sojourners. I'm just honored to do it. Richard, how's your spirit right now these days? How's your spirit? Because the center is such an alive place, we have 50 on our staff now, many of them creative millennials, I'm able to live in a, in a uh, concrete, hopeful world. Now, once I abstract from that and look at the world situation, politically, economically, spiritually, uh, I, I, I would fall into the depths of cynicism. So I don't know how God sustains those two. But, uh, I mean, as a person, I feel happy and hopeful. When I reflect too much, when I think too much, when I read too much, (laughs) I lose that. And I think that maybe is what it means to to pray, not to think too much or read too much. Especially reading the newspaper, huh? Oh, really? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just organized deceit. Uh, not all newspapers, but enough of them to uh, to make it feel like a very untrustworthy world that's in love with illusions. You have a very, um, I'd say, bold, courageous, and aspirational name for the place where you live and work. It's called the Center for Action and Contemplation. Those are very important, large things. And you try and wisely balance, some would say, I would say integrate these two essential elements of faith. How do we act and contemplate in the current moment? Well, here I've been trying to teach it for 32 years out here. And each time that question is asked, I still have to ask myself, do I know yet? Do I know yet how to do it? I know I want to do it. I know on many occasions, it feels like it's happening when I don't get sucked into cynicism and anger and a spirit of dismissal. I just want to dismiss so many voices, so much 
injustice and absurdity. I was down at the border last month, and it just makes you want to cry. Uh, and yet it's gone down to the border. I'm just three hours from it. Uh, that inspires me again to want to find God in it, find love in it. Uh, and the easiest way to do that is to meet these sweet, humble people. <laughs> it's not an academic thing at all. It's just their hungry eyes and their their uh, tears that are always ready to come out so quickly that move me back to a deeper level. So it's not high mysticism. It's just uh, knowing there is a place that I can trust within me. I think it's what we meant by the soul. I can go there and I can draw upon mm -hmm. it instead of drawing upon uh, the, the rather total, if you don't mind, well, you won't mind, politics of deceit that we're living in. Uh, when I was down there, for example, uh, they took me to two ends of the wall where, you know, teenage boys were running back and forth. <laughs> it was sort of laughable that this is a wall. And they said, you know, there's just no way they can do it. But they send these press pictures back to the East Coast or wherever to give people the impression this is going to be an impregnable wall uh, with hills and towns and lakes in between. It just doesn't work, you know. So I, I, I get to pierce some of the deceit through practical visual encounters. That helped. We had we had a, our annual faith leaders retreat at a wall, really uh, San Diego, Tijuana was a wall there too, and we celebrated Eucharist, literally Eucharist on the Mexican side of the wall. And here's the wall it goes right into the ocean, it goes right into the water, into the water, yeah, into the water. And here's the sunset. The sun is coming down as we're celebrating Eucharist. And here's people on both sides of the wall, and some try to swim around the wall at lower tide. And it struck me how ridiculous all of that really is. Here's God's, God's sun coming down on us where there are no walls. There are no walls. Beautiful. You, uh, because we're friends, people often ask me things like this. They say, well, sojourners, you're committed to social transformation." That's your mission, and 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 the and Richard and his center. It's 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 spiritual transformation. What's the connection between the two? I would say they're so deeply joined. They're <laughs> so answer that question for people. That connection between spiritual and social transformation. It's a false disjunctive. Uh, yeah, it um, it's not fair. It's not true to either of us. Uh, I think you more naturally have a political mind. I more naturally have a Franciscan mind of, of the history of spirituality. But we've all met in the same place. We've both met in the same place. And the way you've held on to the gospel, the way I've tried to keep 
social justice issues at the front of awareness. It, we've fought a, a, an equal battle, but from different sides very often. And of course, as the old saying goes, met in the middle. So, um, yeah, I wish people wouldn't talk that way, but I know what they're trying to say because I, I, I do emphasize the contemplative mind probably an awful lot because until we rewire this human, bourgeois, American, delusional mind, I don't know how we're going to get people to care about the social issues for the long haul. They're short-run people, but you're a great example of a long-haul person. And you and I both know that so much of our generation uh, disappeared somewhere in the 70s. Uh, not all, but so many did because they didn't find a ground of peace, of love, of freedom, of community, one or the other. And you always say how, how the contemplative life, the contemplative spirit must lead us into the world. It's a grounding for leading us in the world. And from the other side, I would say that those who care about social justice, if they don't become contemplative people, they simply won't last. The struggle is too hard, too exhausting. It will burn you out. So contemplation and action are so deeply rooted and connected together. And one without the other uh, can't sustain itself or won't finally have any integrity. It can't. And I got to admit, the more common one is these people who consider themselves, they'll use different words, religious, pious, Bible-believing, uh, they'll lump themselves in the contemplative camp. But when you see no interest in the poor, in the marginalized, uh, it's just hard to take them seriously. I, I don't mean to be unkind, but the world doesn't have time for that anymore. It's allowed too much slavery, <laughs> too much genocide, too much white privilege, too much clerical privilege in the world I come from. Uh, no one trusts it because it's born too much bad fruit, I think. Mm -hmm. So people who listen to this podcast are people of faith and different faiths and even no faith at all. Some are churched, some are uh, unchurched, some don't want to affiliate, that's the word now, with the church. But we're all entering into this, this weekend, this holy weekend, this Friday to Sunday, this Good Friday to Easter. And every year, people like you and I are trying to think about what that means right now, at this moment. We preach about what that means. Good Friday. That waiting Saturday and that amazing Sunday. What does Friday to Sunday, Good Friday, the crucifixion to resurrection mean for you in the midst of COVID-19? Let me add uh, a uh, metaphor that I've been using here with the students a lot. 
in the living school, we also speak of the sacred triduum, three days triduum. But I'm going to go one day further and start with uh, Holy Thursday, as we call it. And here's, here's the model I've been giving our students. I call it the wisdom path. Order is the first box that you have to succeed at. Some basic believe, belief that there's meaning, purpose, and identity to my life. Now, that takes quite a while, maybe the whole first half of your life. If you were given a traditional beginning, like I was in the Catholic Church and you were in the Plymouth Brethren, that's the easiest way to start. Because we were told life is good, God is good, we're beloved sons, it all means something, and it's all going somewhere. Now, people who call themselves conservative tend to ensconce themselves in that first tent, let's call them the three tents, a little more biblical. There's a second one that you must and you will be led to. And if the first one is called order, the second one I call disorder. When your game, your salvation project, as Thomas Merton calls it, falls apart. The world as you have known it, as you have fashioned it, as you have chosen it, isn't always true, isn't always right. That I met Catholics who were, you know, more selfish than some Hindus I met. Just some, let me use an example like that, where the, the paradigm isn't holding together. Now, I think Paul's word for that was the folly of the cross. Jesus is born into Judaism. He loves it. He tries to serve it. But then uh, he has to recognize that this religion he loves is, like all religions, partially corrupt, just like Catholicism is, just like every Protestant denomination is. We get it and we don't get it. Now, when you can put together the first tent with the second and learn how to dwell in both of them and let them feed one another, teach one another, balance one another, you will be led to the third tent, which I call reorder, or we would call resurrection in Christian language. Now, people who call themselves progressive or liberal, they get lost in the second tent, just permanent deconstruction, permanent cynicism, permanent dismissal, of what isn't true, what doesn't work, who isn't right, who's phony. And you think you're enlightened because you're not that way anymore. Uh, so what you have to do is hold together what was good and true about the first tent. What was good and true about your evangelical beginnings? There was a lot because I've met so many evangelicals now, and I know that. Half of our staff 
although they call themselves post-evangelical now, but you you said that 40 years ago. Uh, you, you chose what was good and eternal. You integrated our inability to live it, to believe our own gospel. That's disorder. And there you find yourself, almost in spite of yourself, being very traditional and radically progressive at the same time. And people don't know what to do with you. Uh, I think that's been our whole life. It's certainly been my whole life. So both you and I have found ourselves being loyal to things like the scriptures, the tradition, for me especially the mystical tradition that most people in our culture uh, do not take seriously at all. They think this is ancient silliness. Uh, I was educated by the Franciscans in historical theology where we had to study the fathers of the church of the first five centuries. And to most people, they would think this, this couldn't mean anything. But it's been precisely the Jewish prophets, the fathers of the church, that have given me the, the absolute self-confidence to say the things I've been able to say. I've uh, been a priest this year 50 years, and I don't know how I've gotten away with it. Uh, and people often say that to me. But I'd like to believe it's because they know it's the gospel. Now, one more point, more to the point of what you asked me. Right now, the tent or box of disorder is called the coronavirus. And if we wanted to create something that would clear the ground for the pure preaching of the gospel, if I were God, I'm not saying God caused this. That's not my point. But God is certainly going to use this opportunity because much of our main messaging, universal sameness, we're all facing this together, universal fragility, uh, the belief in the apocalyptic literature that it's all falling apart, uh, the disbelief in empire, that our great empire might be dealing with this, the worst of all, I don't know. Uh, just on, in point after point, it's like we're being set up to say, well, you know, the gospel did tell us this, that the rich man can um, and will get coronavirus just as much as the poor man, the uh, straight man just as much as the gay man, uh, the uh, Lat Latina just as much as the white or the black. So all of our issues are, have, are, are just being uh, handed to us to preach the gospel. I don't know what the world is going to be like after this. But it's going to be some form of reorder oh, with a lot of 
disorder between now and then. Whatever then is, is it months? Is it years? Is it weeks? I don't know. But our salvation project, I love to quote that phrase from Thomas Merton. Our salvation project is being smashed to pieces. <laughs> uh, we cannot save ourselves from this by all of our brilliance. And I know God loves our brilliance, but when we use it simply for self-aggrandizement, when we use it to um, push ourselves up and other people down, we use it to tell lies, to, lies that everybody knows are lies. I just, do you like being lied to? I, what kind of self-image do you have that you enjoy your president lying to you? You must not have much sense of dignity, it seems to me. Well, all this is going to be shaped very differently a month from now, two months from now, a year from now. Let me let me let me follow up on that by asking two things. One is um, the coronavirus being the the disorder. I like the way you is it's disrupting and disordering everything. But it's many of us are wrestling with. It feels like uh, it's this is Good Friday. This is crucifixion. The faith leaders on these calls say. While I'm talking to you on the call, my my father, an older African-American man in Detroit, is on a ventilator and dying. Um, our phones come texting with the pings. My, my sister has this and her husband and most of her kids. So ping, 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 family texts about all this. Crucifixion is feeling very real this year for a lot of people who normally just observe it and uh, have a religious observation of it. It's feeling crucifixion, pain, suffering, is feeling very real to many people on Good Friday. As a pastor, what do you have to say to them about that? See, uh, I hope I can say this right, Jim, but I think Jesus came to reveal the shape of reality, how reality works. And the pattern is order plus disorder equals reorder. And uh, we worshipped it in Jesus. We Catholics will all kiss the cross on Good Friday, and that's beautiful. I'll do it myself with tenderness. I believe in it. But our over-localizing the mystery in one body, he died. He rose. Instead of seeing him inviting all of us into this universal mystery. This is what's happening. Uh, and God is in total solidarity with it. It's a message of universal solidarity. That's how I read the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. I'm with you in this. I, I, I'm not taking it away from you, but I'm going to show you how to triumph in it and through it. That's a very different message. 
It isn't problem solving. In some ways, believing the gospel creates more problems for us. <laughs> to, to continue to believe this when the evidence would seem to say it's foolishness. So uh, I'm a, a Pauline mystic. His love of the cross, the folly of the cross. I wrote a recent monograph called What Do We Do With Evil? And uh, I think his understanding of what I'm calling disorder is simply that the human situation is absurd. The human situation is tragic, unjust. That doesn't mean we don't need to work for it not to be. But my suspicion is on the last day of history, there will still be injustice. That's I, I can't prove it, but I especially read Romans and his understanding of sin. And I read it as the tragic human situation that we're all trapped in, caught in, and how do we find meaning in it? Uh, and he says, this is the way. You embrace it with love. I don't think that message will ever be popular. I don't know how it could be. And I'm not saying only people who do that are going to heaven. I don't believe that. But uh, they're the leaven. They're the leaven that don't turn bitter and tired. I love that image you just gave us. Uh, very, very powerfully of Jesus with his outstretched hands on the cross on that Good Friday saying, I'm not taking all this suffering away from you, but I am with you in it. And this week, there are so many people who on this Friday will be feeling that suffering and wondering, how can this happen? Why did it happen? Why did God allow it to happen when Jesus is saying, I, I'm, I'm with you in it. I, you know, I can't take it away, but I'm in it with you. That's a very powerful image, Richard, for this Good Friday of COVID-19. Yeah, thank you for hearing it so well. Let's move to Easter. We all want to move to Easter, but yep. a lot of American Christians move to Easter very quickly. They want to get there quickly and not yeah. deal with with even the lament of what we're in right now, which is Good Friday. But I've been struck, you've re re read the news, the big Easter story this year in COVID-19 is, is, is Donald Trump calling us to reopen the country on Easter by packing our churches. And then all these churches, actually very few are doing that, but uh, saying that Easter is a, is a time to uh, start the economy over again. Uh, and it strikes me that that's, that's not only a, a, a sacrilege of Easter, but the meaning of Easter was never to go back to normal. <laughs> Easter isn't, let's, say, let's all go back to normal. It's, no, everything now will become new. That's not going back to normal. Everything now, the disorder will become new. Yeah, you're saying it so well. That's... And that was what I meant by the word reorder. It isn't the same. It's putting together the first two. And uh, 
I would like to believe we're going to be living in a different frame at this time next year, a very different frame. Uh, God's certainly going to use this tragedy to raise up. Well, we're already seeing it, aren't we? On the news, people doing this and that for their neighbor and so forth. So I'm, I'm living with a lot of hope that he's rearranging, God is rearranging our priorities about what matters and the fallacy of war and structural poverty and so forth. And not that we haven't even spoken of what we're doing to the earth itself. So I keep hearing people say the phrase, when this is over, <laughs> and yet many others, journalists, activists, or religious say that this, this will never be over. And many are saying what you're saying right now, that the world uh, will be changed by this forever. We won't be the same. This is a historical moment. So it, you're great at imagination. How do you imagine the church could be forever changed and different because of this? When, when we see church happening outside of church buildings, very often better than inside of church buildings. Now, in this case, in hospitals and nursing homes, by very heroic and loving people. When we see, you know, like as a Catholic, it was so sacrosanct to go to Mass every Sunday, and now we're forbidden to go to Mass. <laughs> it's, it's sort of unthinkable. My God, I, we can't go to Mass. Uh, <laughs> uh, the world is going to fall apart. Uh, this is shaking the psyche and uh, saying God could rearrange this world or arrange this world very differently. I'm not a prophet enough to know what that rearrangement will look like. But the, what I started with is what keeps coming back to me, this notion of universality, that India is going through this, China is going through this. Uh, there's no escaping it in any elite groups or any elite group. So any talk of superiority or specialness is going to fall on deaf ears for anybody who has eyes to see. It's clear we're a common humanity. So if, if this is what it's taken to uh, teach us our communality, I'm sure Ghana is going to try to use that. Uh, for those who have ears, for those who have eyes, uh, not just equality in our humanity, but a uh, uh, the same bodies, the same souls, the same tears, uh, sameness uh, overwhelms me right now. Mm -hmm. As many of us have read, you write about this very powerfully in your most recent book, The Universal Christ. And you talk about uh, the spirit of Christ and what the spirit of Christ means for people of faith and people of no faith. And a lot of those folks, like you and I right now, we're wrestling with what does this mean? 
while we're being uh, we're sheltering in place. You and I are sheltering in place yes, during yes. a plague uh, and extended physical distancing. Uh, what does that spirit of Christ mean for people of faith and people of no faith at a time like this? It's it's really a paradox, isn't it? That we're we're going apart hmm. to come together. <laughs> we're separating ourselves to feel a deeper compassion for one another, for our neighbor. And historically, that was the meaning of hermitage. As you know, I live in a little, I'm sitting in it right now, uh, although I'm connected to the whole world through these wonderful media. Uh, but the paradox of being alone and yet utterly connected like never before. This is wonderful. <laughs> and if it is going to give a lot of us space and quiet and solitude to find our own soul, our own center, our deepest spirit, which has to be the spirit of Christ, our best self. You know, you've probably heard this, Jim. They said one reason most of us grew up hearing very little about the pandemic 100 years ago in uh, 1919 was that a large percentage of the human population were so ashamed of how they responded during that period that they did not take care of their neighbor. Now, I don't know if that can be proven statistically but I've heard it from two different sources. There was such shame, sort of like the Germans felt after World War II, that let's not talk about it. And uh, I almost heard the Queen uh, refer to that yesterday uh, when she gave her talk. After this, let's be able to know that we gave this our best self, something, something like that and we didn't run from it. I see a lot of that happening. I really do. I mean, even little, you know, middle school kids making face masks <laughs> that probably aren't real good face masks, but that's the spirit of Christ, huh? Uh, that caring, where does that art of caring come from? And why do some care and others don't? We'll never know why, but when you see it, you know it. You, you, you see the face of Christ. You say in the book, the recognition of the presence of the divine in literally everything and everyone. That's a powerful sentence. What does that mean in a time? Where's the presence of Christ in COVID-19? Those things you're seeing, those unexpected things when maybe... Maybe love goes viral alongside this, this uh, virus. Well, first of all, let me say I'm honored that you uh, took the time to read the book. I, I do think it's my end-of-life book, where what I was trying to say in my previous books is finally coming together. But I have an answer for it that satisfies me. Uh, that... Uh, mystic English woman 
that I quote in the very first pages of the book, Carol Hauslander. In her small autobiography, she has one line that just struck me deeply, and it was this. Christ in the tomb is still Christ. So at our conference last year on the universal Christ, we had a whole long litany where we named the atrocities, the injustices, the sadnesses of, of human beings. And the whole congregation, it was 2,500 people, would say as a group, Christ in the tomb is still Christ. Uh, I don't think most of us were trained to think that way. Christ in the tomb was the sinner, uh, the profligate, the, uh, the bad person. He, objectively, he or she is still Christ. Maybe, you know, the way we made that distinction was distinguishing from Genesis between the words image and likeness. The image is objective. The imago Dei, which I've heard you talk about many times. Uh, the likeness is subjective. But just because you don't live up to the likeness uh, doesn't mean that the objective imago, the objective image does not retain its place within your soul. And our failure to teach that has really eviscerated Christianity because it left us free to choose. Well, he has the image of God, but this man doesn't, and he can be lynched or whatever. We, we cannot compromise on the, the gift, the objective gift of God to every creature uh, which we call the indwelling spirit. So thank you for making it to the end of the book where I finally say that. It's finally my only definition of a Christian. A real Christian sees Christ in everybody else. For me, it's that simple, period, done. <laughs> when you can see Christ in everybody else, Jesus stretches it to the end, the least of the brothers and sisters, then you have the mind of Christ. It's interesting how we apply Imago Dei to even issues of public policy. We're doing a whole big campaign for this election on trying to protect against voter suppression. And that isn't for us a political issue, a partisan issue. It's actually saying when you suppress one vote because of the the citizen's color of their skin, that's that's a throwing out, assaulting on Imago Dei, you know? So so maybe this, your image of God reminder, uh, maybe if we're going to do better than they did in that earlier plague, it's to remember that every day, all day, even in our physical separation, but not allow there be a social isolation, we're going to, listen for and protect Imago Day every day during this crisis. At a policy level, we got to push and fight for that all the time, but also in our communities, our churches, our neighborhoods. Uh, if we could come closer together, Richard, 
even in our physical separation, that separation can't mean a loss of solidarity, holy solidarity, perhaps, we need more than ever before. You make me happy. You always have by your understanding of the gospel. Thank you. Yeah, it's almost that simple, isn't it? And it's almost that hard. Once we leave up to the individual ego, the freedom to choose who's got the image of God and who doesn't, we're dead in the water. Our 2,000-year history has shown that up to now. You can't leave it to the individual to decide. Or they'll always eliminate. They'll always exclude. They'll always say who doesn't have it. And as you know, many people who did that in our own United States were from the very states that most call themselves Christian. And yet they took it to themselves to decide who carried the image of God and who didn't, who could be enslaved, who could be lynched. Uh, We even fight a war over it. And then after supposedly slavery is defeated, we say, well, we'll find 50 more ways to enslave these same people and reconstruct uh, the lie. The human capacity for delusion is endless. So you mentioned before, as many have said, that this, this disease, this coronavirus, doesn't discriminate uh, in terms of politics and all of that, which is true. Uh, though because uh, so many people lack access to a safe home or, or hermitage or food or uh, access to medical care, race and poverty become almost uh, pre-existing conditions that make more people get this virus and die from it, which is why Jesus, as you and I have said forever and ever, speaks to the least of these. We are all equal and the same in the eyes of God, as you just said, but Jesus says, pay attention now, pay attention. I was hungry. It was me. That's Matthew 25. I call it the, it was me. It was me passage. <laughs> I was hungry. I was thirsty. It was me. And, and right now being vulnerable, uh, in, in, in social racial isolation is, is really, it'll help people get the disease. It's, Race and poverty are a precondition for getting the coronavirus. You know, I, I read the Gospels constantly in, in new ways because I think they are so inspired. But one of them is that I, I see Jesus walking around healing, healing, healing. And one day it hit me, you know what he's doing is giving free health care. Free health care <laughs> to everybody, and he doesn't have any questions. Are they Jews? Are they sinless? Are they worthy? He gives it to some people who don't even ask for it. I can't help but think the new shape of our reality is, again, among people who are honest, are going to be many people who recognize that universal health care is a right 
not a privilege, because we all profit from our neighbor being healthy. And it's taking a pandemic to teach us this. When we're unhealthy, we make one another sick. Let's hope we learn that lesson. And you mentioned healthcare. It brings me back to what you said earlier. Maybe we should uh, finish on this. Is how um, in the disorder time, uh, you said the disorder time now is coronavirus, but there are those who are doing healthcare on the front lines um, that many of us are close to, related to, and families and friends. And that's been spoken of broadly that the healthcare workers, and I would add the people who clean the hospitals and uh, take care of all of that. They're really uh, on the front lines in this war, as people said. They're the unspoken heroes. There's such a, whether religious or not, there's such a sign to me of what you call the spirit of Christ. Isn't that true? I mean, I know specific examples of that. People that I probably in my worst mind, because uh, I know a lot of people from the hospitals here, uh, having been to them a lot recent years, uh, who I would have considered secular, uh, not Christian, new age. And I know for a fact, many of them are staying in there now, uh, putting down their life for their brother and sister. Without question. It's just beautiful, beautiful. That's the spirit of Christ. And it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, who say the right words, but those who have the right spirit. And they're hidden everywhere. So Richard, would you would you perhaps end this time by saying a prayer for those healthcare workers who were really giving their lives, giving up their lives, offering them every day for their brothers and sisters. Uh, say, I think they need a prayer from Richard Orr. Say a prayer for them, Richard, if you would. I'm saying it for myself too, but thank you for asking for it. God of all mercy, God of infinite mercy, we seem to need infinite mercy now so we don't count and measure and way who's worthy of our care and who isn't. We thank you for those who are doing this the best in our hospitals and nursing homes, risking their own lives. Policemen, knowing they're often resented and now in their own way, they're trying to help us. Maybe we'll have a new sense of who the saints are and who the holy ones are. We ask that you rearrange our minds, Lord, that you help us to think with big minds and big hearts and big souls. Give us the spirit of Christ. We ask this because we know you want to give it. And whatever we ask for, you will always give. We pray in all of the holy names of God. Amen. Amen. Richard, that was beautiful. <laughs> this is Jim Wallace with the Soul of the Nation. God bless you.